just saying hell yeah to Grand Funk, that's all. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, part-time roadie, freelance pyrotechnician, and volunteer firefighter. You do a lot for the community, Sean. That's kind. Yeah. I'm here from start to finish. (laughs) I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles, and I'm trying my hand at... Writing a nice nonfiction book about a kitty cat. Oh. Aww. It's a, a very unlucky kitty cat who's died eight times, and now he's on his ninth alive. Ninth alive, huh? <laughs> yeah. His ninth time being alive. Interesting. Yeah. The stakes are high. So what are you calling it? A, a ninth alive, duh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I look forward to cracking that one open. I'm sure you do. I'm co-host Peter Cook, and I'm starting a real estate company that's going to be so big, it knocks Remax off the map. We're calling it Grand Max. I saw that one from a mile away. <laughs> and, Can't fail. And with us, enjoying my joke is a returning guest to the podcast. He is the owner of Permanent Records in Los Angeles. Welcome back to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, Lance Barisi. Hey, fellas. It's great to be back. Great to have you back, Lance. Last time you talked a little Chicago Transit Authority with us. Yes, indeed. Yeah, the... You know, had to represent the roots in the first go round, and now we're getting into the nitty gritty of what I'm really all about is, which is uh, private press records of uh, generally the rock variety. And um, what is awesome about this Grand Max record is not only that it's an incredible album sonically, but that it actually uh, qualifies for the criteria of I'd buy that for a dollar, unlike almost every other private press rock record that's worth listening to. Yeah, I was going to ask you, are there other private press hard rock albums that are like this easy to find? It seems like this might be kind of a one-off in that regard a little bit. It is definitely um, an odd one, and it doesn't make any sense to me why it is as inexpensive as it is. I I find it regularly. I pick it. I you know it's the kind of record that anybody looking for private press records in general would see the album art and and buy it without hearing it, without even needing to hear it because it just looks like it's going to be great. You know, I mean, if you like Hawkwind, you're going to be like, ooh, uh, I think I need this thing that looks like it might sound like Hawkwind. And um, it doesn't really sound like Hawkwind, not exactly anyway, but it is one of the very few private press LPs in the rock world, especially from, you know, the mid to late 70s that is actually listened 
listenable from front to back and really, really enjoyable. And I don't think it will remain inexpensive for long, but it has been inexpensive and fairly common, especially for a private press record. Yeah, this is their debut album, A Ninth Alive, the Grand Max debut from 1976 on Pacific Records. Where do we want to start to give them a taste of this dollar bin magic I mean, let's just get right into one of the best titled tracks on the album, Glitter Boots Boogie. All right, that's side B, track three. some heavy rock we don't we haven't done a lot of hard rock on the podcast and we've never done a private press hard rock album and i found i couldn't find a whole lot about this album lance do you know much about it you know the extent of my knowledge about grand max and this album in in particular begins and ends with what I can read in the uh, on the liner notes on the back cover and obviously you know what's listed the information listed on discogs but luckily I found somebody who can tell us a lot more about this album his name's Tim McCorkle whoa Tim McCorkle hey <laughs> how's it going <laughs> hello yeah what what do you need I'm out Best I can, man. 
Do you want to tell our audience what your relation to Grand Max is? Well, I'm actually, my brother and I, he was a drummer, I'm the bass player, and we're the actual, um, with Steve Guitar, um, the three of us started Grand Max. Wow. And so I got a, a brother team going here, and um, yeah, you know, and we just started it, and then we got lucky and linked up with a promoter, Chris Fritz out of the Midwest, you might have heard of him. He could Google it, um, Midwest Productions, and they started a small label. They signed us, got a, I saw on a lot of big shows, uh, Ted Nugent Rush, whatever, you name it. And we did this album, and then we did Kiss Heaven Goodbye, and the rest is history. Wow. So you were the band was based out of, was it Kansas City, Missouri? Is that correct? Yeah, it's Kansas City. Actually, it's Liberty, which is a small subdivision outside of kansas city about eight ten miles and uh, but it's basically kansas city a lot of people think we're from nebraska and we're not and what happens with that is the kiss heaven goodbye i know we don't we're not talking about that but it was mastered up in in omaha nebraska i think sunset sound studios and that's why they think we're from there i think oh your your second album kiss heaven goodbye right and that's why they we're from Nebraska. We're not. We're from Liberty. We're from Kansas City only. Yeah. I saw a few different music blogs from back in the day that seem to all be repeating each other and saying the wrong city. <laughs> so well, that's uh, one of the downsides of the internet. Right. Right. Well, Tim, you're here to set the record straight and Missouri represent. That's another reason why I wanted to talk about this Grand Max record. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri originally. And anytime I find a record from Missouri, especially a rock record from the 60s or 70s, it's uh, it's coming home with me because uh, I got a little home state pride, as I'm sure we all do. Y'all talk about Michigan quite a bit and we all uh, you know, know all the great rock bands from Michigan, of course, especially Detroit. Missouri doesn't have so much to talk about, and Grand Max is one of the few and uh, one of the best. Okay, you got Grand Max and JPT Scare Band. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there you go. And you know, you're from St. Louis, so um, you know the rock band Missouri. Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, see, we started with Pacific and Panama, came out with our first record, and then Chris Fitz found Missouri on the same label. And if you look on their album, on one of the album covers, he's got a Grand Max t-shirt on, uh, Ron West. Oh, no way. I never noticed that. Yeah. And uh, we played St. Louis one time in some club. But uh, yeah, so we came out first, and then Missouri came out on the same label from Kansas City with Chris Fritz. Yeah. Is what had happened. And actually, Missouri used to open up for us two or three times, and then they went off on their own and had their moving on hit. And uh, yeah, moving on is Missouri. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but if there's one album cover, you'll see a Grand Max t shirt that Ron West is wearing. I think Chris probably made him wear it, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> cross promotion. Yeah. And um, so you're from St. Louis. I get that. That's REO Speedwagon. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. They were huge there. Yeah. That's something I did want to ask you about, Tim. Um, and I don't know, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, co hosts, but. What were some of the other local Missouri bands that you were playing with uh, on the rig back then? Well, 
when we got with Chris Fritz, I mean, I was 19. My brother was uh, the drummer. I was a bass player. He's 20, 21. Our first show was with Ted Nugent Headline. He just came out with Stranglehold. Wow. 10,000-seat hall, Municipal Auditorium in Kansas City. It was our first show. Okay, I'm 19. I'm a little nervous, right? <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, Rush came out with Caressa Steel, played second, and we got to open the show. All right. So at that point, we didn't really play with too many local bands around Kansas City. It was just more he sent us out to Omaha, Nebraska, to play with uh, Black Oak, Arkansas, Bob Seger Hart, whatever. Or we headlined or or we did a few shows quite a bit with Ted and Rush. OK. And it could have been said we did Rush for the Caressa Steel Tour and the 2112 when they came out with that tour. Uh, they called Cressa Steel the down down the tubes to her. I don't know if you knew that, but they were. And yeah, and so at that point, you hit a level where you just start doing that, you know. And we played, headlined uh, Memorial Hall two or three times and sold it out in Kansas City. We were pretty popular there. Yeah, incredible. What um, can, can you tell us any more about the label Panama and um, like how? how those records were distributed and cause you know, as a guy from Missouri, I've been seeing that Missouri record, the self-titled Missouri record from 1977, just to be clear about what we're talking about here. I've been seeing that since I was a kid. It's in every used record store. There is at least one cheap copy of the self-titled Missouri record. And that's one that I think may actually be worth talking about on a future episode, fellas, wink, wink. But, <laughs> well, yeah what was the deal with panama i was i was just gonna ask the because i had said uh it's on pacific at the beginning but yeah i see it's both pacific and panama it, it's on both labels <laughs> i think what happened i you know like i said i was only 19 at the time and you try to get what you can get you know and chris fritz is a big promoter with new west productions i mean they did everybody he started pacific and I think when when Missouri came on, then they somehow, you know, money wise, you move things in a different company and made just turned it into Panama, but it was the same label, okay, kind of. And then uh, Missouri got signed with I think it was Chrysalis, if I remember right, on their first record, big label. Yeah, so it started with Pacific with us, and then at Panama when he added on Missouri. And then, of course, they got signed with Chrysalis, and then we moved on, actually, to, um, you know, you lose a singer after that, and then you go to L.A., and you know you know the band War, right? Of Absolutely. Yes. But their management team, Jerry Goldstein and Steve Gold, signed us and took us out there for a while, and that didn't last too long, but it was a cool deal. So it's kind of what happened, yeah. Wild. And um, just uh, to clarify, Chris Fritz was also, um, what was he, managing Aria Speedwagon at the time, too? Or what else was he doing? No, he wasn't managing them, but he did all the high concerts in in the whole Midwest in Kansas City. He did Fleetwood Mac, Aria, Ted Nugent, all the stadium shows. And he kind of just discovered us and said, I'm going to, you know, start this record company, Pacific. We were the first band with the first album that he'd ever did as a project, I think, you know. Yeah. And uh, and we did. And then we did 
the Kiss album after that. And then he, he did Missouri. And then after that, I don't know, we split, you know, we parted ways after that. But he was a huge promoter. If you Google it, you'll see Chris Ferretz. He did uh, everything in the Midwest with New, Re- New West Productions. And uh, yeah, so why wouldn't you go with it, you know, kind of thing. And Yeah, that, that sounds like it had to have been pretty exciting, especially at 19, <laughs> like you said. Just yeah. seemingly getting introduced as the heavy hitter local band with all this opportunity in front of you. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, I was just a kid. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's a good way to spend your late teens, that's for sure. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I did some reading up on Chris Fritz, actually. Oh, good. And I found he helped organize the infamous Ozark Music Festival. Absolutely. Which yeah. that drew at least 200,000 people with some estimates as high as 350,000 people. Yeah. And if you look at the lineup, it was bonkers. It was uh, some of the bigger names on it, the Eagles, Aerosmith, Bachman Turner Overdrive, Leonard Skinner, Bob Seger, Charlie Daniels. Uh, Wolfman Jack was like the MC for the festival. Ow! And yeah. <laughs> I mean, he had us on every show he could put us on. We did a stadium show in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was, uh, I think it was uh, trying to get the most money out of Black Oak, Arkansas at the end in 1975-6. Bob Seger, Hart, Mahogany Rush, and us. I mean, you know, he was just trying to do it, but he had the power to do it, you know, and it was, it helped us out. Did you um, all ever play the Ozark Music Festival? Um no. No, we did not do that. I won't lie to you. <laughs> I was say, yeah, we did. Google it. No, <laughs> no we won't do that. No, because you guys are smart enough. You'll get research. I know. <laughs> I live in Nashville, and I'll tell you what. You cannot sit in a bar or a restaurant here and lie about yourself because everybody here is a musician that knows everybody, you know. Of course. Were you all uh, being courted by major labels uh, what, when you were active, Tim? No. Um, the only thing we did, we, like I said, is uh, Wars Management, uh, Jerry Goldstein and Steve Gold that had war, and they everybody, they signed us, took us out there and did that. And then after that, we broke up. And to me, it wasn't the same band anyway. So after the Kiss Heaven Goodbye album, we split up. And it was over with after that, as far as I'm concerned. It just became a different band, you know? Yeah. And then did you end up, uh, did you, your brother, or Steve end up going on to play in any other bands after after Grand Max? We, we did some stuff in L.A., um, and we kind of called it Grand Max, but it, it just wasn't the same. We played the Troubadour, every every club out there, Roxy, Rainbow, Gazars, you name it. And it just, you know, it just never happened after that. And then after about 1989, you know, I kind of went off and started jamming with um, Robert Sarzo out of Hurricane, which is Rudy Sarzo's brother. And he wanted to put a band together. He really liked it. And we jammed a few times, and then that just didn't work out. And then, of course, when the other guys found out, you know how it goes. And, well, you're out of here, and you're doing this, and you're doing that. So we just kind of just all just disbanded after that, you know? 
Yeah. I was trying to move on and, and, and I thought that's pretty cool with Robert Sarzo at that time in 89, you know, uh, Rudy's playing with Ozzy and man. And, uh, we had Terry Dunn at a Banshee. I don't know if you heard of Banshee, the heavy metal band, rock band Banshee. Yeah. He played with us for a while. I got him. I knew him since I was, you know, 16 and got him in and we played together a while out there and, he formed Banshee after that, and they signed with Atlantic, and we're still friends today. We talked yesterday, actually. So uh, he's a great guy, great guitar player, and it's just a lot of history. But it just never happened after that, after the Grand Max, after the Kaseven Goodbye album. It just kind of went, you know, it fell apart. You got four guys together, three or four that work, and once you can't replace <laughs> some people, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. That's interesting. Let's get to another song, though, before we get any further into this uh, impromptu interview. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do Ceiling Wall next, side B, track two. Every day I know you're lying, but I know I've got to stay. song is a good example of something I wanted to ask you about, Tim, and that is uh, contemporaries of yours that I mentioned earlier who were based out of Kansas City, Missouri. I don't know if you would have known them at, at, at you know back in the mid-70s because I think they didn't really play out much, but the JPT Scare Band, they were known for really stretching out these long jams that would go on for 5, 10, 
15 minutes sometimes. It seems that Grand Max is very focused on song. Like the structure is very tight, you know, very, it's like clean and tight. I've noticed with, you know, for hard rock. Was that a conscious decision to stay song focused? Well, yeah, you know, we played with those guys in 2011. We had a reunion and they played with us. Very good band. They're super band. Yeah, it you know, to me, it depends on the riff. At that time, you try to keep a song, <clears throat> our songs, within no more than four minutes, with three minutes, because, uh, you know, the, usually the first riff is what catches you. But sometimes, you know, you get jamming on a song and it just goes on and on. It, you just do it, you know. It just You think it sounds, you know, you like what you, you hear. So some of them are longer than others. We weren't perfect songwriters at all, but uh, we just did the best we could. But we were, you know, try to keep it within three and a half to four minutes. Does that make sense? <laughs> what I said. Yeah. 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 Well, sometimes, yeah, you, you start writing and, and ideas can start to take and hold and you, you, it's sort of, you don't even have control of it anymore. <laughs> I, I know that it can go. Like Leonard Skinner, did a couple of their songs at the end, they get jamming and jamming and jamming. And then we were actually more of a live band and we actually sounded way better than we did on a record. You know, it was just live. You couldn't capture it. We didn't have the, our first album, a ninth alive, I think it was a thousand eleven hundred bucks, and it was recorded in a cave, <laughs> and you know, it's like nothing, you know, to do that, you know. And it was very cheap recording, and so we had to go with what we had, you know. It's all we had to work with. So, but live, it wasn't even the same band. I mean, it's like, wow, you guys sound so much better, like, you know. We, <laughs> and it, I mean, if you actually listen to the ninth. Song, that's why it's called The Ninth Alive. I mean, to me, in one way, if you crank it up, to me, it sounds better than it does the recording part of it, you know. Um, and that's why we put it on there because we thought, well, we like that. That sounds better than <laughs> the nine other songs we did, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Studio can sometimes hinder, like, just letting loose. Yeah. So that's what we were more of a live band, and we just never really actually got captured live on a on a recording you can't do it for 1100 bucks i mean you can i guess but you follow me it doesn't do it justice but you know then again it's all in the songs but i think there's some actually potential in some of those songs if i redid it today i actually went over today and kind of redid one of them glitter boots boogie and when i crank up my freedman with my (laughs) man i'm like well i can redo this you know (laughs) like that yeah so were the songs much different in a live setting was there any significant changes did you stretch out any sections or anything like that yeah maybe a little bit yeah sure we're talking 47 years ago yeah (laughs) naturally you're gonna make a little bit of changes i don't think the same way as i do 19 my wife thinks i do (laughs) (laughs) she's like you still think like 19 no i don't (laughs) You know what I'm saying, but you know, and then yeah, you grow and you know, and that, and you think, man, actually, that's a cool riff. You know, every song in a rock song actually starts with a riff, kind of, and it starts with a kind of a riff, and how you get going, or you get a melody going, and you put it together. Yeah, but I, I actually went over today. My wife has her own business, and 
it's different. It's a cooking school, but I jam over there on Sundays and I can crank it up. And I started playing Glitter Boots Boogie. And uh, man, I'm like, I can work with this and this, redo it. And I think it'd be a really, really cool song. Yeah, absolutely. So when the when the band was starting, was the idea just like, let's write some songs and see what happens? Was there an intention of we want to like play this kind of music? Or was there any bands that were influences for all of you guys in particular at that time? Like what was the concept when you first started Grand Max? Yeah, I think, well, the, the influence was uh, the three of us were playing with a couple other guys in a copy tune band, you know, Stonehenge or something. We played copy tunes and then we wanted to break off and write our own music and we wanted to become something successful. And if we could, so we were at a stick show and Steve, our guitar player, Steve Myers went up and contacted Chris Fritz and said, I got a band and we can do this. And somehow convinced him to come see us. And yeah, we wanted to write our own music and, and become somebody. Yeah, absolutely. We believed in ourselves. My brother was a drummer. I was a bass player. I actually used to play guitar, but I played bass at the time. And, um, and we believed in ourselves, you know. My brother and I've been playing all our life, you know. My whole uh, history, my family, my dad played guitar, his dad played, you know, whatever, you know. And so we have a musical history in our family, and uh, this, we just believed in ourselves. That's great. Which records uh, or which bands were you listening to the most back in '76 or before the formation of Grand Max? I liked Ario, like Bachman Turner Overdrive was a big one for me. Grand Funk Railroad. Yeah. Yeah. Michigan's finest. Hell yeah. Yeah. You know, Grand Funk, uh, Bachman Turner, um, you know, more of the three piece kind of band, four piece, uh, you know. Yeah. And I thought I, I was hearing some like kind of garage rock influences and maybe like prog rock here and there. Is that stuff you, you were into? Yeah, I mean, we liked all kinds of music. I love jazz. Like now, I do anything, you know. But yeah, I mean, anything actually. It had a lot of funk in us, and if you can kind of tell a little bit. But uh, I like trapeze, Deep Purple, you know that kind of thing. Um, oh yeah, trapeze, the Medusa album. Yeah, Glenn Hughes, um, sure, and um, and then you know influences come from there. Yeah, sure. So one other quick question I wanted to ask, Tim, is obviously we're talking about A Ninth Alive because it falls uh, into the I'd buy that for a dollar criteria of being purchasable for less than $5 or, or potentially findable in a dollar bin at a record store. And that's something that uh, Kiss Heaven Goodbye, the second album, doesn't have going for it. Do you have any idea why A Ninth Alive is seemingly more common than kiss heaven goodbye were more copies pressed of this first album uh than the second one or is it just that this supplies the same but demand is higher for kiss heaven goodbye and those records are just in collections and not findable out in the wild these days wow well you know the the old saying is we got a we got a singer which was nick christopher because I kind of wasn't cutting it, so to speak, and he took my job. That's fine. But um, I think that's part of it. You know, I wasn't the best singer on her, but I was just 
did the best I could do for my age because nobody else was there. At the same time, a Ninth Alive was had a lot more prayer. You know, it sold 50, 40, 50,000 that I know of, which is not a lot. That's that's not bad though. Because only <laughs> they only pressed one two thousand copies of it. I I don't know why it went viral. You know, expansion like that. We all don't know why, but it did. <laughs> you know, you know, and but it only had one two thousand copies pressed on it. That was the second album. Yeah, and Fritz had an opportunity from a German company over there. They wanted to press it. And send it out, and they were just going to give us $2,000 and press it. We wanted to do it. He didn't want to do it. He goes, oh, Atlantic will sign you, and they never did. So uh, but as far as the first, I think it's because there's a lot more copies, and that, I think that's part of why, I guess, is all I can say. You know, nobody really knows why. The second one was only pressed with one 2,000 copies. I think that's why it's a little more rare, but I'm shocked that it sold. I've seen it. $550 for, out of Japan. I, I, I'm shy. I'm like, why is this? You know, it's, I don't get it. But Supply and demand. Yeah, I'm not going to complain. It's, you know, it is worldwide, but, you know, it's um, is what it is. You know, it's just, <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> well, kind of like that thing. That explains it perfectly. I had no idea a Ninth Alive sold in the tens of thousands. That's pretty phenomenal, Tim. That yeah, it hit. 45, 50,000, the last I heard from Fritz, but that was in 76 or whatever. And it, you know, he had it distributed out at some point enough that it probably did that, you know. And, you know, even the Kiss album, when it came out, it, it was sold for $6. You're saying five or under. Can't we just knock a dollar off on it? <laughs> <laughs> back in the day, it was only, yeah, come on, guys. It was only $6 back in 1978. Amount at uh, Capers Corner, six dollars. I mean, let's just knock a dollar off. We're good. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. these people that are buying it for five or four or three or a hundred, I see it. You've seen it, and it's not a lot. Yeah, right. You're not yeah. getting anything off of that. I don't get anything off of that. They're just selling it like a you know. And I've sold a few of the ones I had for that, and I get it off of that. But if they sell it, it's just a personal thing. You know, and I get that, that this is not a record company doing that. You know, this is just personal. So, yeah, man. Well, you mentioned earlier that Graham Max was a better live band. So let's listen to the live cut on this album, Let Me Know, which is side B, track four. The reason the album is called A Ninth Alive. Woo!
Well, Tim, I think um, whoever told you you weren't good enough to be the singer in Grand Max was dead wrong. Well, they didn't really say it that way. I just, you know, I got replaced. And uh, actually, I was a little relieved, at, at, you know, for your job because it was a lot of pressure. But and then again, I think, you know, I, th- I think I have a voice. And uh, over time, I would have been very good at it. And uh, my personal feeling is I don't think we should have ever changed from a three-piece. You either go downhill or not and left it alone. And but that's the way I feel. But I I, I respect. Uh, thank you for your compliment, man. You know, uh, I got a lot of criticism off that album, and it's okay. You know, it just makes you better. Like you had said earlier, you can really hear the power in that live recording. It's a really good sonically produced live track. Thank you. Yeah, it's got like more edge than a lot of the rest of the album. I can definitely hear what you're saying about. Yeah, being a live band and not like really capturing that in the studio with the rest of the tracks because that one's got uh, some some oomph, some power. Yeah. And the uh, only way I even noticed it was a live track the first time I heard it is because of the crowd cheering at the end there. Tim, you said y'all were performing in front of 5,000 or so people uh, at that recording. Is that right? Yeah, it was a 4,000. It's 3,500 seat, and we sold 500 over standing room only. We did that twice. And to me, if you're doing it twice, you got a little something there. Uh, (laughs) Otherwise, you know, you're talking to three, you know, 4,000 seat hall, and you you don't do that. I mean, you just know it. If it doesn't work the first time, they're not going to come the second time. Right. So I'm I'm proud of it. Sure, we've done you know a lot of stuff. Uh, well, part of it's on a, a, a photo shoot, and I'm not going to say which album cover, but whatever. <laughs> There's only one photo on that. Here's the deal. Here's the thing. We were we were so broke. That's what I was trying to tell you guys. You know, we're little kids. You know, we're young guys, man. We made all our own equipment. We made our own cabinets. Not heads for, you know, but cabinets. I had 815s for base, own Marshall cabinets, photo shoot we're doing. We made our own bond pots. We used quarter inch steel, welded, half a pound of gunpowder on each side of the stage, opening for Ted Nugent Rush in a 10,000 seat hall. That works. (laughs) (laughs) The side monitors out. When we did the album cover for our, I know we're not talking about our second, we used the same thing in the 1100 seat. <laughs> we learned not what to do, but not what not to do. See? And I'm telling you, and it blew the backs off the cabinets. Oh, no. Every speaker, if you ever look on it, it but I mean, and then Channel 5 News was in the same building in Kansas City. We did this at 5.15. The 5 o'clock news was on. They came on. I'm serious. They came on and they said, we just think Kansas City just had an earthquake. <laughs> and they said, then they came on five minutes later when, you know, like in the building said, Grand Max was doing a photo shoot <laughs> off bomb pots it literally i mean we were opening for nazareth in four days we had to pay fifteen hundred dollars for new speakers in every cabinet it just yeah Whoa. 
But you got a good story out of it, at least. Uh, another one. I'm opening for Ted Nugent. We're open for Ted Nugent, Paducah, Kentucky. Little little tiny boxing arena. He only sold 75,000 copies of Stranglehold. He didn't know where it was going to go, you know. And uh, it only held 2,000 people. We wanted to use those bomb pots there. They said no. So we're doing our sound check like at 4 o'clock, you know, and his band's coming through. Here's Bob, Rob Grange. Derek St. Holmes walking through our equipment to get to the, we had to share the dressing room. It was that little. I'm playing my bass and Rob Grange, I hope I can say this and you'll block it. He goes, you're, you're rattling my balls, man. <laughs> I'll never forget that. You know, that's something you never forget. You know, I'm, I'm 19, 20 years old. You never, he goes, you're rattling my ball. <laughs> I'll never forget. I just think it's kind of, you know, kind of funny like you guys and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, that quote should have been used on the hype sticker for Kiss Heaven Goodbye, and you would have sold 40 or 50,000 well, copies of that one. <laughs> well, this was during a ninth of life, you know, uh, during a ninth of life, yeah. Yeah, if anybody is uh, curious as to what that looks like, the the Kansas City earthquake photo shoot, go look at the album cover of Kiss Heaven Goodbye, and you get a good idea. <laughs> If you look at the, I had 815s for bass, and you'll see, like, I think my two cabinets, and it, it moves on. You'll see the cracks in the speakers. Oh, wow. <laughs> it literally blew the back off the Marshall cabinets on the guitar. They're screwed in, you know, every six inches. The backs were were about two and a half inches blown off the back of the cabinet. <laughs> so it went through the speaker, blew the back off the speaker. Yeah. Unbelievable. Oh it's unbelievable. It's, I mean, our hearing, you're looking at each other going, what the? Oh, my God. It blew, it blew the candle winds out. Yeah. Yeah. Your, I don't know how I got, you can see in the photo. Yeah. Eat your heart out, Spinal Tap. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> That's I you what to do. It's what not to do. <laughs> you know, but, you, know you, you, you learn from experience and, you know. Just one other quick little side note here. The uh, uh, another unusual element of this Grand Max album is that all the copies that were pressed were pressed on white vinyl, which is pretty unusual for any record of that time uh, at all. Especially a private press is. Was there any particular reason why the album was pressed on white vinyl, Tim? Well, it was a nickel more at that time an album. I knew that, and Chris did it. Chris Fritz did it as a promotional thing. Yeah. You know, like, you know, you just kind of do what you do. And then we found out he had a little friend come up. We didn't even know it. They didn't ask us, didn't pay us. We didn't care because we thought it's cool. He goes, man, do you know your albums in the 1979 Playboy issue with Raquel Welch on the front? On two pages in between a girl's legs with the Rolling Stones red album and ELO had a different color. out. They were using colored albums. Yeah. and ours is in there twice on both pages. It says Grand Max, you can look it up all you want. 1979, Rocco Welch is on the front. And, you know, R.I.P. they didn't ask us for free promotion, but uh, that's kind of why he did it. Yeah, just a, it's a promotional. Back then, you didn't do that a lot. Uh, and he was trying to push it, I think, you know, to get it like, oh, wow, look at this, you know. Yeah, well, a nickel well spent. And then, well, yeah, it was a nickel more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wanted to know whose legs they are, though. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
<laughs> I got to be careful. My wife's right here. <laughs> <laughs> happy wife, happy life. Yeah. Well, Sean, mm-hmm. we're, we're curious what earth-shattering recommended similar albums you have brought to suggest to our listeners. All right. I got a couple of good ones here, and I imagine Lance might have a few additions after I'm done. But first up, something that I think the artwork reminds me a little bit of it, the music reminds me a little bit, and it's kind of an obscure hard rock record that isn't as expensive as it probably should be yet. White Witch, A Spiritual Gathering from 1974. Mm. Amen. I've never heard of that one. Um, I don't know a ton about it. Lance, are you familiar with that yeah. record? Yeah, of course. That one's yeah. that one's great. That's a very good recommendation and an unsung. Um, that's not a private issue uh, album, but it is pretty obscure and it's great all the way through. Yeah. Been seeing that one around for a long time and it's always a fun listen. Next up is a record that I know Peter's into, Stars, self-titled from 1976. Yeah, they're somewhere between... Power pop and glam rock, S T A R Z. Correct. Yeah, like you said, there's a lot of emphasis on the song with this Grand Max record. So I wanted to get something that kind of has that more pop leaning song structure on there, but still fully within the the rock world of the mid seventies. And last suggestion, one that we have featured before, Paris, self titled from 1976. Oh yeah. Bob Welch from Fleetwood Mac. Correct. Doing his kind of Zeppelin-esque hard rock side project. And to chime in, just since you uh, asked me to, I'll (laughs) I'll chime in with, uh, well, A, since we already mentioned Grand Funk, um, you know, the best Grand Funk albums are not cheap, unfortunately. Uh, Not anymore. But the live album, the double live album from um, 1970, is one of the best, one of my favorite live albums of all time. It's a double LP, as I mentioned already. It's got really long versions of songs you're already familiar with, if you know Grand Funk, and really just shows off. It's a good example of the prowess of that particular band. Another one that's pretty obscure and is kind of around the same time as Grand Max's material is an album by a gentleman named Randy Orange. The album is titled Split Orange from 1979. I don't see it often, but it is cheap when I do. Uh, and I filed a copy a long time ago and have enjoyed it ever since then. It's also on colored vinyl, of course, on orange vinyl. Thanks, Randy Orange. And one um, that kind of leads us into the plugging part of the podcast is the Johnny Barnes story album from 1980 by Johnny Barnes. That's a really cheap self-released album on his own label called Nightcrawler Records. And um, Johnny Barnes was featured on Brown Acid with his song Steel Rail Blues that was on the sixth trip the sixth volume of Brown Acid back in 2018. We've come a long way since then. We're about to release the 16th trip uh, here in the next couple months. And yeah, that's one of the many things that I do is the Brown Acid compilation series. Wow, cool. Which is, uh, for those who are uninitiated, Brown Acid is a compilation series that compiles late 60s and early 70s, uh, hard rock, heavy psych, and proto-metal 
In addition to Brown Acid, I also curate a heavy metal series of compilations called Scrap Metal. Scrap Metal is the natural progression of the Brown Acid series where I compile heavy metal 45s from the late 70s and 80s, all private press singles, mostly done by bands that self-released one record and called it quits. Wow. Which is part of the reason why I got in touch with Tim, because I thought Grand Max would fit in well on Brown Acid, and maybe we'll be able to work something out, but I'll give Tim the microphone now to promote what he's got coming on. Unfortunately, somebody beat me to the punch, and the Grand Max albums are actually being reissued. You know, I got an offer about three months ago, four months ago, from uh, Sonic Records. It's called Metal Classic. Uh, they so far seem like they do a pretty fair job. I mean, you know, and it's been so many years. I thought, well, nobody else has come forward, and uh, you know, and and so they offered a fair deal, and they were going to get a lot of money off this stuff. You know, I mean, and uh, I just more wanted the the, the reissue of the um, to be on Spotify, iTunes, and uh, iTunes, and. Apple Music and all that. So we, so far, we're working a deal out. It's it's kind of finalized, but it's not finalized yet. It's not in the, it's not on there yet. So it is finalized, but. Uh, Looking forward to seeing those reissues out there. Yeah, that's very exciting. Uh, well, yeah, Lance, uh, thank you so much for hooking this up and bringing Tim on. It's, of course, we would we'd be remiss if we didn't mention permanent records in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, I, I'm a frequent shopper there and I live nowhere near Los Angeles. I've never been there. And that's because I follow you on Instagram at the at permanent records, LA account where you frequently daily post things in stock that you have. And all people have to do to claim them is comment with a spicy version of dibs. I've I got a whole bunch of Carly Simon records for next to nothing recently i've gotten some melanie records and even yeah and even bobby gentry stuff for a pretty good deal i uh, care to elaborate on the spicy version of dibs and uh, at permanent records la absolutely yeah like basically at the beginning of the pandemic um when our shops and the permanent records roadhouse were shuttered and just to kind of digress for a minute the permanent records roadhouse is a live music venue a bar and a record store all under one roof we host live music five nights a week we have touring bands lots of incredible local bands everyone from the ocs to jay mascus to fred armison and reggie watts have performed there and we're open from noon until uh midnight uh five days a week and if you are in L.A. or know someone in, that is in L.A., you should send them our way. But in addition to what we do there, we take records out of our bins and put them up for sale on Instagram. Yeah, like Peter said, almost every night and generally about 100 records a throw. And it's everything from I'd buy that for a dollar fodder, cheap stuff, on up to hundreds records that are worth hundreds of dollars and everything in between as well. So if you like to buy records and are in a place where you don't have access to them with ease, this is a very easy way for you to buy things. And uh, yeah, it's it's about as 
as easy as it gets. You're already on Instagram. You might as well just comment dibs on something that you like and uh, we'll ship it to your doorstep. Yeah, just make sure that you don't just say dibs. You got to like, <laughs> add something to it or else the algorithm of Instagram will maybe blank you out. <laughs> yeah. I just saw right before we started, I saw a Canadian pressing of the Flying Burrito Brothers Gilded Palace of Sin. I was like, ooh, I uh, I'm, I'm tempted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We, we get an amazing amount of uh, rare and uh, collectible used records uh, on the rig. I travel far and wide. I buy record collections here locally uh, every day. And then I also go to Europe and to other states in the U.S. to, to buy collections and visit record uh, conventions and things. So the flow through our one store in L.A. is pretty uh, in, incomparable. And I'm very proud of that. We've been in business for 16 years. Yeah, now the the in 2019, the new chapter of Permanent Records began, and and now it's like the Disneyland for record lovers. That's awesome. And you had Nardwar there. Nardwar, yeah, he was uh, interviewing Don Tolliver in our store a few weeks back, and uh, it, what a what an honor and treat. It was to host Nardwar, the man, the myth, the legend. Doot, doot, loot, doot. <laughs> doot, doot. All right. Well, do we have any final thoughts before we get out of here? I have one. Those of you who are familiar with the Acid Archives, which is basically the Bible for private press records, should know that the the Grand Max is featured in the book. Oh yeah, Acid Archives is a basically a compendium of private press LPs from the 60s through the 80s for the most part. And the quote from the Grand Max section is that fans say that the addition of Nick Christopher is what made Kiss Heaven Goodbye such a leap forward from their less interesting and much easier to find debut album, A Ninth Alive. And although I think Kiss Heaven Goodbye is a great album as well, there's absolutely no reason you shouldn't buy a ninth alive for any price, especially the kind of price you can get it for very easily on Discogs or in a store like mine. It's well worth the $8 or $5 or less that you'll have to pay for it. And I think we just showed you why. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming back, Lance. Thanks, Tim, for joining us and sharing all that info. I just want to say, if I can, I want to thank, uh, first of all, Lance for thinking of, of us and, and getting us on this pot, podcast. That is super. And then, is it Sean? Yep. And I want to thank you so much for being involved. Are you in L.A.? I am in Philadelphia, actually. We're all over the place today. But thank you so much for being involved. That is super. And Jeremy, and you're you're in L.A.? or? No, me and Peter are in Michigan, Kalamazoo, Michigan, home of Gibson Guitars. Wow. Okay, I'm in Nashville. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Which is okay. the new home of Gibson the, the Guitars. The new home of Gibson, yeah. <laughs> for the last 40 years. Thank you so much for being involved. I am so psyched on this. Didn't expect it. And it's, it's very cool. You guys do very good work. Very cool what you do. I thank you so much. 
Oh, well, thank you for coming on. It's been an honor. This is a very cool new step for us on the podcast. It was a very good deal. Yeah. Thank you, guys, man. Really. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you, Tim. Awesome. Well, what? Yeah. What are we? Uh, what was the song we had queued up to go out on? Take You Away is going to take us away, right? Perfect. Well, thank you so much for listening to yet another installment of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Tim McCorkle, the Grand Max. <laughs> there you go. I don't know if I was supposed to say that or not. but Yeah, yep. <laughs> that was perfect, Tim. And I'm Lance Barisi from Permanent Records. Make your time, your time.